you are listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing. Only today and for the next few weeks, we're going to be discussing something other than just writing. Now, for those of you who haven't listened to the last few episodes, if you haven't listened to the last, I don't know, 25, 50 or so, you might be unaware that I recently graduated with my master's in English. And in doing so, I had to write a very long thesis. My thesis is over 130 pages long. However, (laughs) I wanted to cover this very special topic on the podcast and if you do not know what I, I wrote my thesis on if you're not if, if you just haven't listened to the last few episodes it's on toxic masculinity and the TV series two and a half men now this episode is going to cover the introduction so I'm going to go over toxic masculinity as a whole I'm going to give you some some reading material if you're interested in, in further investigating toxic masculinity and I am going to perhaps dip my toes into the world of two and a half men. I don't know what we're going to do within this time period because this could be a three or four episode series. I don't know. However, I split this into several different chapters. There's an introduction. There is a chapter entitled, What is Toxic Masculinity? And then we get into the series. So the first chapter of the series is seasons one through two. Then we get three and four. I skipped uh, season five. The, The season six and seven has its own chapter. And then season eight has an entire chapter to itself with a little bit that leads into the first episode of season nine, which is when Ashton Kutcher joined the series. Now, I'm going to cover both why I wrote about this and also toxic masculinity in general in this episode. So I don't want you to think that I'm just going to be reading from my thesis today. In fact, I'm going to be doing very little of that in regards to what I actually wrote in the thesis. Now, I might read portions of it, and I'm definitely going to do that in the next few episodes. However, this is a primer episode. This is sort of like what I did with Invisible Man, where I covered uh, Ralph Ellison and Langston Hughes before I actually started the book. So with all that out of the way, I'm not going to do my typical rambling in this episode. We're just going to get into it. But before I do... If you would like to support the podcast, please go buy my books on Amazon. (laughs) Please go buy them. Now, if you missed out last week, I had a free giveaway. And I still, as of now, have free PDF copies of my bibliography. Although, I'm probably going to be deleting that tweet today after I record this podcast. Because I did so as as a social experiment. Especially in regards to Twitter and the hashtag writing community. But uh, I don't want to get into that right now. Also, if you would like to support me in a more passive way where you don't actually have to pay me money through buying a product of mine, you can also support the podcast by streaming my music. Just look up Lurking Vowel. Lurking Vowel. (laughs) Wherever you stream music. 
Okay. So I wanted to talk first about different writers, researchers, academics that I incorporated into the thesis because in order to give you an idea what I was trying to do with the thesis, I have to actually define toxic masculinity and I have to recommend, well, I'm citing who I cited within my research. So first of all, if you were to just get on, I'm not going to do this, but if you were to just get on the Wikipedia page for toxic masculinity, you would find a citation that leads directly to Michael Flood's website where he actually defines toxic masculinity and he goes on to talk about why it's not more commonly written about and researched within the academic community. Now, within my little schism of the academic community, which is a bunch of English nerds, we're different than Michael Flood because he's a sociologist. Similarly, Raywin Connell, the woman who is responsible for coining the term hegemonic masculinity, I believe she's also a sociologist. And Elizabeth Fish Hatfield is the only other person that I could find that wrote critically about two and a half men. Now, I don't know what she got her, her degree in, but I know that she has a PhD. But while she was getting her PhD, she wrote a... It's about 12 pages. The, the total of the document that you download, it's called what, is, what It Means to Be a Man Examining Hegemonic Masculinity in Two and a Half Men. She only writes about it for about 12 pages. And she states that she is covering the first five seasons, but realistically she's not. Okay, You can't possibly cover tw uh, five seasons of a sitcom that had like 20 to 24 episodes per season in 12 pages. I had trouble covering what I did, and I practically wrote a book on Two and a Half Men. So, yes, I am probably the only person in academia to ever write a book about Two and a Half Men. So, I guess I have that honor. Uh, Chuck Lorre, you're welcome. Also, Lee Aronson. Lee Aronson doesn't get the credit he deserves, and there are some great writers on Two and a Half Men that I will get into momentarily. But I came into this from a place of love for the series and the characters, and Hatfield is very critical, and she obviously doesn't like it. But I will be referring to her throughout my research. I don't know how much I'm actually going to read of hers, but I'm not reading anything from this document right now, so I'm going to close out of it. I'm going to take this time to actually define toxic masculinity using Michael Flood's research. Now, a lot of people have varying ideas or concepts of what toxic masculinity is. Now, this gentleman is a published sociologist. He has his own website where he discusses masculinity, gender roles, etc. So for him to give you a definitive definition of toxic masculinity, he is actually relying on years and years, about three to four decades at this point, because it started in the 80s. This is a long time coming. But also, in a very short span of time, we don't have a whole lot of research on masculinity in my field. And there's only so much within sociology. It's 
relatively new compared to feminist um, academia and that lens. So I'm going to stop yapping and just read from his page. The term toxic masculinity has appeared increasingly frequently in media and popular discussions of men and gender. The term typically is used to refer to the narrow, traditional, or stereotypical norms of masculinity which shape boys and men's lives. These norms include the expectations that boys and men must be active, aggressive, tough, daring, and dominant. Before we get any further, we need to go back over that. Because I did this a few episodes ago with Invisible Man when I was talking. I was giving you a little taster, a little primer for this. The term typically is used to refer to the narrow, traditional, or stereotypical norms of masculinity which shape boys' and men's lives. You can't leave that out, okay? So toxic masculinity is not just fraternities and football and beer and wife beaters. That's not... That's just one facet of toxic masculinity. And if you think that toxic masculinity is just men being toxic, or specifically men being toxic towards women, you're wrong. Okay? That's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this research. I wanted to expand the research into toxic masculinity, expand the definition of toxic masculinity, etc. So when people go research toxic masculinity in my field, they will have someone in their field that can give them some guidance on where to proceed because most of this research is done in Michael Flood's field. Now, there are other great writers out there who have written about toxic masculinity, and we'll get into them in a moment. The term toxic masculinity points to two interrelated interrelated impacts of the constructs of masculinity. First, Toxic masculinity is bad for women. It shapes men's involvements in sexist and patriarchal behaviors and relations, including men's abusive or violent treatment of women. That is, toxic masculinity contributes to gender inequalities, which disadvantages women and privileges men. Second, toxic masculinity is bad for men themselves. Narrow and stereotypical norms of masculinity constrain men's physical and emotional health. Their relations with women, their parenting of children, and their relations with other men. So in the 80s, men and women, but it was it was mostly men. Raywin Connell is a transgendered woman in the 80s. I assume that she identified as a man at that time. I don't know. But she's the one, as I said, who coined hegemonic masculinity. And you had other men like Robert Bly who were specifically writing about masculinity and Robert Bly actually popularized it and brought attention to masculine studies. However, masculine studies, though a lot of people, well, I say a lot, a few people were writing about it in the 80s and 90s and 2000s. When I first took interest in it, this was about 2015, not only was there not a lot of material to read about in regards to, to masculine studies, but it was outright dismissed when I brought it up in conversation with other people in my field and when I spoke to people outside of my field because they felt that it didn't have merit. They thought that it should just fall under gender studies as a whole, which, yes, masculine studies is part of gender, gender studies, sure. However, their femininity and feminist studies... So why can't there why can't we just label masculine studies masculine studies? 
anyway, it was it was just outright dismissed many times when I when I took an interest in it, and I couldn't find much material on it. In fact, a few years ago, when I was writing about the searchers for a grad film course, I wanted to finally incorporate something from this field, uh, this this concept of toxic masculinity in my research, and I couldn't find anything. I'm not saying that it didn't exist, but I had a really hard time finding any written documentation that would have been uh, effective in this academic setting, i.e. not Wikipedia or just random shit from the, the internet. I had to change a lot from that paper because I actually used the term toxic masculinity several times. However, I had to take that all, I had to take it all, all, all references out to toxic masculinity because I couldn't define it the way that Michael Flood has. And now that we have Flood's actual specific definition of it, I think it's important that we acknowledge that, but also the fact that toxic masculinity, as he says, is used to refer to the narrow traditional stereotypical norms of masculinity which shapes boys and men's lives. So what does that mean? Okay, you need to to ask yourself, what is masculinity? And when I was doing my thesis defense, one of my professors asked, is two and a half men, disregarding everything that we've said, is two and a half men an indictment of actual toxic masculinity or is it actually just lampooning or satirizing or critiquing masculinity? Which, if you're an actual fan of the show and you think critically, you will notice that it is actually a critique of masculinity in those roles. Alan Harper and Charlie Harper are not heroes. However, the audience might perceive Charlie Harper, as portrayed by Charlie Sheen, as a hero. But that's kind of the point, okay? Charlie plays the man that men want to be and women want. And Alan Harper is the opposite of that. However, both of them are accepted paradigms. They represent two encouraged forms of masculinity within our society. But they're they're nothing alike. So, what does it mean to be a man? Is one form of masculinity in this household more valid than the other? Before I get more into the series and my rationale, I wanted to give some acknowledgement to the different people that I used in my research and maybe an, uh, you know just a brief note on each text. So the first one that was recommended to me specifically by... A reader, my professor, who was actually also the same professor that I took for African American literature where we studied Invisible Man, he is published as writing about black masculinity. So when I found out that he wrote about masculinity in his dissertation, I totally wanted him to be part of this project, okay? And he the first thing that came out of his mouth after I asked him, he asked me, have you read Iron John by Robert Bly? Now, Robert Bly is considered problematic, especially by feminist scholars. However, 
Robert Bly outlined something that's very important to this whole discussion, and that's the 50s male. The 50s male is Alan, essentially. Okay? Charlie is, as Elizabeth Hatfield puts it, the Hugh Hefner type. Now, there's another text that's pretty awesome called Playboys in Paradise by Bill Ogersby, or Oscarby. It's O-S-G-E-R-B-Y. Masculinity, Youth, Leisure Style, and Modern America. He goes back to the 50s as well. And that, that's a very good text. Even if you're just vaguely interested in masculinity and th- this whole discussion, it's pretty cool. I don't remember much from ch- Challenging Hegemonic Masculinity by Richard Housen. I don't remember if I used any of his stuff, but it's in my folder. Uh, the next would be Rebecca Feezy's Masculinity and Popular Television, which does not cover Two and a Half Men. However, it's an awesome text, and she actually challenges uh, Raywin Connell's definition of hegemonic masculinity. Because here's the thing. Hegemonic masculinity has been used in our field for a long time now, about two or three decades. And the definition has been expanded upon by other academics. However, anytime you read anything about hegemonic masculinity, you're going to read about Raywin Connell. Her work is going to come up regardless. She is the one constant throughout a lot of this research. Now, did I go back and quote her? Did I go back and read her beyond what I needed to? Uh, I didn't use any of her research in this project because I'm not covering hegemonic masculinity. And a lot of these other people, especially Hatfield, do a pretty good job of just block quoting her. So, you know, I wasn't going to worship at her altar. I have nothing against Raywin Connell. I think she is a, a, a brilliant researcher. However, I, I had no use for her research within my own. The next would be Rethinking Masculinity Studies, Feminism, Masculinity, and Post-Structural Accounts of Agency and Emotional Reflexity by Andrea Whaling. I used a little bit of this in my text. I just cannot remember how because I wrote most of it over the course of uh, fall semester. And then I made huge revisions and additions in March and early April of this year. The final text is The Man They Wanted Me to Be. Let me scroll down a little bit because this guy is actually a more contemporary writer and he's not an academic researcher. His name is Jared Yates Sexton. The subtitle for this text is Toxic Masculinity and a Crisis of Our Own Making. And he talks about toxic masculinity from a personal perspective. He talks about his father and other men that he knows. Now... He doesn't actually, I, I don't think that he uses any secondary text. I think that he just builds on his own story. Uh, it, it's been months since I read this, but I, I did use some of his, his work within my own. And um, I definitely recommend reading this. It's a very short read. It's only 102 pages from this PDF file that I have of it. But uh, would I say it's the strongest in terms of research, hell no. However, it is a good read. If you hear any background noise, it's my wife in the living room watching Like Mike on Disney+. Plus. However, 
Before I start talking about my experience with Two and a Half Men, I wanted to give further acknowledgement to the writers of Two and a Half Men. First of all, there's Chuck Lorre and Lee Aronson. Without them, there would be no Two and a Half Men. And I'm looking at my Works Cited page, and let me scroll down just a little bit. They cover the first page. Yeah, they, they cover a whole page with citations for just them. Susan Beavers, she wrote That Pistol Pack and Hermaphrodite from Season 3 and That Darn Priest from Season 8. Uh, then we have, let's see, Don Foster. He's pretty awesome. He wrote a lot of episodes of the series. Eddie Gordetsky, he's awesome. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you that they're all awesome and just get that out of the way. Mark Roberts is one of my favorite writers on the series. Okay, so we've got them covered. Now, I don't want to read you my actual introduction. I'm going to tell you the story of how I came to this series. And I've already given you a little snippet of my interest in toxic masculinity back in 2015, so I, I might just skip over that part. Now, in 2015, I had just come out of a a terrible period in my life and I, the, the terribleness just continued. However, uh, the year prior I broke up with someone that I'd been with for eight years. I had, uh, a lot of mental breakdowns. I was going through, uh, a bad period of clinical depression. I was going from relationship from relationship, which was also not healthy, just dating around and not really taking care of myself first. So, my dad, who I'm not particularly close with, we talked about him before, but I suppose it's relevant to this discussion because I actually wrote about him in the introduction. So, I was raised by my mother, and she raised me by herself. She didn't get remarried. The last time I know that she had an actual date was in 1996. Now, I'm not saying that she's an awesome mother or an awesome woman because she put her son first. I'm not saying that she didn't have a right to date around, that she didn't have a right to get remarried, but these were her choices. And after her experiences with my father and other men in her life, I think that she was just done. And she has high standards for whoever comes into her life next. And I don't blame her. She should have high standards because she's been through enough. So, she's kept the same job for over 30 years. She is college educated. She has uh, um, two degrees. She has an associate's in teaching, and she has a bachelor's degree in English. She is the reason why I'm really into reading. She precipitated my interest in music. She is also one of the early supporters of my writing. I would spend my summers and her office filling up legal pads and she would often read what I was writing um, now in terms of feedback or anything she didn't really have a lot to give I mean I was a kid writing but beyond that my father was not really in my life so much it's not that he just pick up, picked up and left the thing is is that with my dad he and my mother got divorced when I was three. They'd only been married for four years. And he went and he tried to start a new family and failed. And then he tried again and failed. And when I was 11, he moved away to Louisiana. So 
he was all but just absent from my life. So I went through a period where I didn't speak to him um, from ages 14 until I was about 20. I, I didn't see him. I didn't see him again until I was actually like 21. And then after the breakup and everything, um, he was going through his own shit as per usual, but you know, he knew I was going through a hard time. So he invited me to come spend time with him that summer in 2015. He said, as long as I want to, but the only thing is that he was living in an RV. Now this was his choice. So when he left Louisiana after his third divorce, he left everything behind. He packed clothes into his truck he didn't go back for pictures. He didn't go back for any personal items. He drove to my grandfather's house in Georgia, and then he found a job in South Carolina, and that's where he's been since. So he was living in an RV, and that was fine because he was a bachelor. Uh, he wasn't taking care of anyone else. I spent a total of two weeks in his RV, and he had set up a bed for me in the living room area. <laughs> of this RV and really it was his, his pullout couch that he put a, a foam topper on. So it was very comfortable. I'll say that, but you know, that's what we sat on during the day, but he was gone at work. So I was alone for a lot of the time and I'd brought my laptop. I wrote a lot. I wrote a screenplay while I was out there. I played Minecraft and Grand Theft Auto. I, I, I watched Hannibal because I downloaded the last few episodes for, for me to watch and keep track of. I was really into Hannibal at the time. But he didn't have internet. I had finished the books that I'd I'd brought to read. I brought The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, and I finished that really quick. I tried to read another book that was recommended to me. I didn't take any interest in it. I also brought, I think I brought Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and I've never been into that book. So... The one thing that he did have was satellite television. Now, I, like many of you, cable cut in 2011. So I didn't really have to watch regular cable or satellite TV because I streamed or I downloaded stuff. And I hadn't been exposed to a lot of like contemporary television at the time. And if you're familiar with FX, you know that during the day they play a lot of reruns of sitcoms. One of those sitcoms happened to be Two and a Half Men. So there I am just eating. I was probably eating breakfast because I like to watch stuff while I would eat. And I kind of got sucked into Ashton Kutcher's character's storyline. He was dating a British woman at the time on the show. And I was of course interested in masculinity at the time I was asking myself what it meant to be a man what was my place in the world etc cetera, etc cetera. I mean a few a couple of months after this I started reading Bukowski for the first time I watched the series Californication which is inspired by Bukowski and after seeing two and a half men from start to finish because I downloaded the entire series when I got home I noticed that these two men, Alan Harper and Charlie Harper, they represented two very different paradigms in our society, but encouraged paradigms. And yet, 
they were considered losers for different reasons. So Alan is very well put together, as I said, the 50s man. And he's actually very devoted to his wife, even though she's being very um, unkind to him. And we'll get into that later. And he wants to keep his family together for the sake of his son and really for the sake of the image of the perfect family. Charlie, on the other hand, is a lifelong bachelor who sleeps around. He gets drunk whenever he wants. Uh, he, he literally tells Alan in the first episode that for no reason at all, he will make a picture of margaritas in the afternoon, sit on the deck, and get drunk and pass out. He is the man, as I said, that women want to be with and men want to be. What was I to do with this information? Well, when I first saw Two and a Half Men, when it was on television with Charlie Sheen, this was like 2003, 2004, I didn't like it. I didn't take any interest in it. My dad liked it. Uh, I only saw it when he had it on when I was around him, which wouldn't have been very often. So my exposure to the series was very minimal, and... I just wrote it off as a stupid TV show, much like anyone else. I heard about it from other people, and then there was the whole Charlie Sheen debacle in the early 2010s. I was listening to Howard Stern at the time, and they covered all of that. He also called into the Stern show and gave an interview that was that lasted a little while. But, I mean, that brought a lot of attention to the series as well, but I, again, wrote it off as just being stupid. And boy, did other people too when I told them that I was watching Two and a Half Men. So, the pe- the thing about English majors and other people in academia is that they can be pretty snobby. So, when I told my then best friend that I was watching Two and a Half Men, he was like, why? You know, he, he didn't think very highly of the series. And when I, I explained to him this... Um, this theory that I had on the show, he essentially said, wow, I didn't know it was that deep. And then jokingly told me that it was just me reading into things too deeply and analytically. I had other friends, uh, one of them being the owner of the local music store. And when I came in and I was telling him that I, I was watching two and a half men, he was like, why are you wasting your time? Uh, if you're interested in masculinity, watch Californication, which is one of the reasons why I watch Californication. But everyone and their mother was dismissive of Two and a Half Men and me watching it. Uh, the only person that I know that encouraged me in watching it, not that I needed encouragement uh, other than my dad, would have been a girl that I had started dating at that time uh, very, very, very briefly. Before I start reading from the actual thesis, I need to close out of this shit. I'm going to read you the abstract. Chronicling Two and a Half Men's first eight seasons, this thesis closely details the series protagonist's mental, physical, and social decline through the lens of toxic masculinity. Thus, the thesis seeks to define toxic masculinity, accepted masculine paradigms in American society, and the contradictions found in not only enabling these examples of masculinity, but also how they construct Charlie and Alan Harper's moral deficit. 
considering the little research currently present in the English and literature academic community on toxic masculinity, this series offers an eight-year interpretation of two opposite personalities which society accepts as ideal forms of male behavior, childhood experiences which shape their personas, and the inability to maintain lasting healthy relationships as a result. Now, I want to go down to... I'm holding the microphone, which I don't do very often on here, but since I'm reading straight from my computer, I should. So I wanted to read the last part of my introduction before I actually read my What is Toxic Masculinity chapter. Again, I'm not going to read the whole thing. So, scrolling up a little bit. This is great podcasting here. I realize that I'm neglecting Jake In a supposedly family-oriented sitcom, Jake serves as the consistent comedic relief until his role diminishes and vanishes in later seasons. If I were writing a more expanded book on this, which maybe I'll do one day, I doubt it, I would have to give Jake his own chapter. I would also have to get into Freud. I would have to get into... I, I, I could have given Evelyn her whole an entire chapter in this. I, I write about Evelyn a lot in here and Rose, but uh, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm very critical of Ambler Ta- Amber Tamblin's character, Jenny, in this as well. In season 11, Charlie's previously undisclosed love child, Jenny, portrayed by Amber Tamblin, serves as, as his replacement. Considering this was literally the 11th hour in the 11th season, I have no idea why Laurie and the producers bothered replacing Jake. His character arc demonstrates he never mentally matures and his stint in the military continues this trope. While he continues, while he goes through a teenage phase, most fans prefer Jake as a chubby little boy. Unfortunately, this overlooks a key part of the series and what binds Charlie and Alan initially. Jake is the half-man referenced in the title. So, He not only shows Charlie's sensitivity as he hopes the boy does not suffer the same childhood trauma at the hands of Evelyn, but also gives Alan purpose throughout the series. Admittedly, I am focusing on Charlie and Alan, though Jake's presence hold these men together. After I finished Two and a Half Men, I joked to friends that I might write my dissertation on the elements of toxic masculinity in the series. My argument always hinged on Charlie and Alan representing two acceptable and encouraged paradigms in our culture, but they lose favor in their fictional society as the series progresses. Before Charlie Sheen unexpectedly left the show in season 8, his character runs away to marry his stalker Rose out of desperation while Alan cannot maintain any romantic relationship and develops a sexual deviancy. Two and a Half Men demonstrates toxic masculinity's long-term effects on two people who perform within masculine roles, yet cannot adhere to evolving social constructs and therefore transform into outcasts who behave out of desperation rather than willful maturity. I need to take a sip of Coke Zero Vanilla. Or is it Vanilla Coke Zero? Only one grocery store in this whole town sells Vanilla Coke Zero, and I don't know why. Walmart doesn't have it. Target's not going to have it, but Kroger doesn't have it, Ingles doesn't have it, only Publix, and I fucking hate Publix. It's the most expensive grocery store in town. This is Patrick Attaway with Demise of the Podcast. Toxic masculinity enters conversations frequently, especially in academic settings, concerning feminism and violence, but rarely do people define the term. I'm going to interject here that... I heard a lot of professors use the term toxic masculinity. 
I'm not even sure half of them actually know the definition of it or what it actually means. So, as I said earlier, I'm pretty sure a lot of people have just used it thinking that it describes men being toxic, which is not what it is. Even Michael Flood's International Encyclopedia of Men and Masculinities never clearly defines toxic masculinity and references hegemonic masculinity far more. From his own website on masculinity and gender, Flood states, we've already given the definition of this. Though Flood focuses on how toxic masculinity affects women, he outlines the first-hand victims of societal constructed masculinity, men. Flood also concerns himself more with the sociological aspect of toxic masculinity rather than applying the, this lens to literature or media. Most research on toxic masculinity focuses on real people rather than fictional characters, so examining a male character's entire lifespan through the, this specific lens is virtually impossible to find in academic research. Elizabeth Hathfield's What It Means to Be a Man Examining Hegemonic Masculinity in Two and a Half Men focuses on Charlie and Alan Harper's performative masculinity, but not the reasoning behind their actions and personas. Thus, a tremendous blind spot clouds the true, mending, the true meaning of toxic masculinity and the trope's relation to literature and popular culture. In my thesis defense, I talked about an instance in my life where a woman, specifically my mother, contributed to my um, adhoration to a gender norm, masculinity. And I was a freshman in high school. I had long hair. I wore black shirts. I was the metal slash rock kid, whatever you want to define that as. And I had a friend who was kind of emo, kind of not, but she was in our, our friend group. And we were best friends for a little while because we had the same classes and shit. But we had gym class together and we had this period after gym class before we went to lunch where we were just sitting around and she would put uh, black eyeliner on me, which I didn't mind. I thought it was kind of cool. And I wasn't worried about coming off as girly. I wasn't worried about people thinking that I was gay or anything like that. I just thought it was cool. I wasn't thinking that I wanted to, to look like a woman. I just thought I looked like a, a another fucking metal or goth kid. So when I got into my mother's car, because I was 15, she laughed at first, like the first time she saw it. And she said, well, your Uncle Henry dressed up as a girl for Halloween every year. And... Some people might find that problematic now. Again, my mother is a positive influence in my life, but, you know, she's a Southern lady. She was born in the 60s. She, like many other people in her generation and the generations beforehand, had ideas of how men should be. I got a lot of hassle from my family and uh, people who are in that circle with my family for having long hair. And... Until I was in high school, I never had total freedom to grow my hair out because in junior high, I tried multiple times and my mother, usually through my grandmother being mean to her or commanding her or whatever because my grandmother was her boss at work and that got held over her head a lot, um, I was made to cut my hair. But at the time, I had long hair 
and I was wearing eyeliner and I don't know that my mother really understood it, but the second time I got in the car and I had eyeliner on, she was pissed. She said she never wanted to see me with eyeliner on again. She may have said that I'm not a girl. I don't know, but she was not having it because from her perspective, that's not how a man, uh, a, a, a boy that she was trying to raise into a man should be. Let me get back into the reading a little bit. Hatfield's research on masculinity in the series shares similarities to Flood's perspective. Though she interprets the first five seasons of Two and a Half Men as a critic rather than a fan of the series as a whole, Hatfield suggests research in the 90s largely ignored masculinity as a socially constructed ideology, whereas deconstructing femininity was a popular focus of feminine studies starting in the 1970s. Despite her focus on hegemonic masculinity, Hatfield's statement ignores the writers who were deconstructing masculinity in the 80s and 90s, despite citing studies from both decades. Robert Bly wrote Iron John, a book about men in 1990, and received significant media coverage for his work. However, she points out the blind spot again that the collective culture ignores deconstructing and understanding masculinity, which prolongs the generations of gender norms. In the 80s and 90s, Robert Bly analyzed masculinity and paralleled these paradigms against fictional tropes, but he, did, he does not critique traditional masculinity unlike Flood or Hatfield. Feminist critics tend to view Bly's writing as antiquated, but his definition of male paradigms remains relevant for the sake of reference. I do not understand. I, I've read the criticism of, of Bly. I understand if you think he's sexist or if you think that his, his views or what he wrote about in, in Iron John is antiquated. Whatever. However, he is identifying these tropes, and that's very important. Other people were not doing it as well as he did. Anyway. While Hatfield's focus on Two and a Half Men briefly outlines hegemonic masculinity, she mainly criticizes a perception of masculinity the show presents. Bly specifically breaks down the American man and the generalizations regarding the man's role in society. Bly states, during the 50s, for example, an American character appeared with some consistency that became a model of manhood adopted by many men. He got to work early, labored responsibly, supported his wife and children, and admired discipline. 1950s America created a myth of a greater country in time. Bly outlines this paradigm as a man who goes to work, comes home, goes back to work, and eventually retires or dies. In that routine, he maintains a conservative image of someone who loves his family and lives to provide for them. The 50s man possesses no greater purpose than his career in paying bills. Thus, he lacks personal or emotional ambition and maintains a stoic demeanor where he never expresses any inner turmoil or regret. Society not only encourages this lifestyle, but continues perpetuating the 1950s as the epitome of American culture. Does that sound familiar to you? Did anyone here recently in American culture uh, talk about the good old days or making America great again, like the 1950s? People talk about the 1950s like it was the greatest decade of all time, especially in America. And... The thing is, is that what you may not be realizing is, is that that 50s man paradigm is part of toxic masculinity. 
Alan Harper fits this mold. Because the series writers consistently portray him as struggling, the audience only and often interprets Alan as the lesser Harper brother. Hatfield proclaims that only Charlie's version of masculinity is communicated as successful. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and interject here before I read more. That Hatfield is fucking wrong. She does not seem to realize that Charlie Sheen's character has been portrayed as not a good guy throughout the eight seasons. He's portrayed as a man who wants to change. He wants to move out of his lifestyle, but he can't. He's stuck in it. He's stuck in this rut. Why? Again, I'll get into that later, but just realize that Charlie Sheen, or rather Charlie Harper, it's easy to confuse the two because he plays that character and a lot of people assume that they live similar similar lifestyles he's not someone that lee aronson and chuck Lorre are portraying as the ideal man you'll notice that neither of them are like charlie sheen's character okay this interpretation not only ignores how charlie envies alan's fatherhood and successfully fitting this 50 this 50s man trope, but Hatfield believes Chuck Lorre and Lee Arison promote his debaucherous lifestyle. Charlie consistently fails as a romantic partner as he continuously chases validation and mimicking his brother's success as a family man. Lorre and Arison actually create Alan as a representation of American status quo, though they critique that paradigm as a failure in masculinity. As Bly pinpoints, the 50s male had a clear vision of what a man was and what male responsibilities were, but the isolation, that one-sidedness of his vision, were dangerous. Alan creates the perfect family unit as he marries his high school sweetheart, raises a son, and inhabits the perfect suburban neighborhood. Not unlike the spaces portrayed in other sitcoms, such as Everybody Loves Raymond and According to Jim. What a lot of people don't realize, this is me interjecting again, is that Two and a Half Men was made in response to the typical family sitcom. I mean, in the 90s, you were coming out of the era of The Cosby Show, which is, you know, a, an ingenious, tremendous sitcom. But, you know, you had Full House. And on the other side of the spectrum, you had Seinfeld, kind of Dharma and Greg, which Charlie Sheen was involved in. Not Charlie Sheen, uh, Chuck Lorre. And there was this cookie-cutter presentation of what the American family should be through Full House and Step by Step and all that shit. And then you had stuff like Everybody Loves Raymond and According to Jim, which was kind of about slightly despondent men who were portrayed as almost trapped in this American ideal of family. Anyway, since the 50s, American television consistently portrayed noblemen who rarely display turmoil as they are trapped in the masculine role society places upon them. For instance, Raymond and Jim are flawed, yet still remain maintain their happy marriages and keep comfortable lifestyles. Lori and Arison immediately take that stability away from Alan, and he crumbles over the course of the series. He built his entire persona around maintaining the status quo, and his divorce tears that perfect American image down. After all, sitcom dads rarely lose their wives to divorce, but to off-screen deaths, so the audience feels sympathy for them as a single father. That was employed in Full House quite a bit. It took three men to do what one woman and a man could have done, right? Right? 
while Alan mirrors Robert Bly's 50s man, Hatfield identifies Charlie as resembling another archetype that America embraced in the 1950s, Hugh Hefner. Hatfield states Hefner's portrayal of bachelor masculinity offered it an acceptable alternative masculinity that reinterpreted the male patriarchal stereotype of the macho and the wimp, again situating alternative forms of masculinity as other. Interestingly, Bly never acknowledges Hefner or this oversexed macho paradigm that appears in the 50s. None of these aforementioned writers incorporate the typical man who women want to be with and men want to be, which fictional characters like James Body embody. Did I say James Body embody? James Bond embody. Charlie Harper embodies this Hugh Hefner lifestyle that society encourages men, which brings forth the contradiction of two and a half men in toxic masculinity. If Alan Harper's 50s man is who society says men are supposed to epitomize, then Charlie Harper is the man society simultaneously admires and encourages younger men in their aspirations for money and women. While women receive continuous shame for exploring their sexuality, Charlie only hears applause when he brings home a woman home only to forget her name the following afternoon. Hatfield believes Two and a Half Men promotes Charlie's lifestyle as ideal, but overlooks his worsening alcoholism, troubled relationship with his mother, a stalker who eventually murders him, and the younger women who openly find him too old and gross by season four. Yes, Hatfield is just so sure of her her thesis, her theory on Two and a Half Men, that she overlooks the fact that Charlie is portrayed as a loser because he's the older man. That starts happening in season four, you see it kind of creeping along in season three, but he's trying to pursue Mia in that season, and that's a huge part of this whole experience that we're going to go through together. But in season one and two, those are the only times that Charlie Sheen's character, Charlie Harper, is truly at the height of what people would consider him. Anyway. what Hatf- Okay, I already read that. Um... Yeah, what Hatfield misses is that Laurie and Arison portray Charlie as just as much of a loser as Alan, but Alan still possesses the one thing Charlie will never have, a son. If you pay attention in Two and a Half Men, Charlie desperately wants his own family, and he envies Alan as a result of that. Because here's the thing, when they were growing up, Charlie had to take care of Alan, but Alan was always kind of the loser. So... Charlie was the hero and Alan wanted to break away from worrying about disappointing his mother who was not only mentally abusive but neglectful and smothering. And what's funny is that Alan ended up doing that to Judith in their marriage. But he thinks that he has to adhere to that 50s role because they lost their father at an early age and his mother put them through hell. So Alan thinks that he's doing a good thing by adhering to that trope, whereas Charlie takes the opposite route, and he has to deal with all of the abuse from his mother through uh, alcohol and sex and, to a lesser degree, music. 
Despite providing a clear definition of toxic masculinity, Michael Flood finds the term problematic and acknowledges most academics do not incorporate this term in their research. Because men misinterpret this term as suggesting all men are toxic, Flood suggests using other terminology to prevent men from feeling blamed and attacked. On a sociological level, his approach makes sense, but Two and a Half Men critiques the behaviors and societal norms that create men like Alan and Charlie Harper. Toxic masculinity does not mean men are toxic or even an attempt to categorize their toxic behavior. Flood suggests more academics incorporate hegemonic masculinity, much like Hatfield in their analysis, but this term relates more to power dynamics. Next week, we will start talking about the actual series of the show, I don't know if I'm going to do a chapter per episode or what, but I know that the conclusion is its own chapter and, you know, season eight is its its own chapter. I, I don't know if I can inc- incorporate them into the same episode. Uh, I might have to cover, you don't care about this. This is all very inside baseball, but I do want to briefly talk about what I brought up early in the podcast which was the fact that I put a link with uploads to my entire bibliography on my pen tweet. So after the whole thing with authors getting upset about book returns, I uploaded the free books and I did the the giveaway on Amazon because of that. And I wanted to specifically contrast the two because I had quite a few people download my books on Amazon for Kindle, but over 400 people saw my pin tweet. I know this through the analytics. Only three people clicked on that link to download free copies of the books. Now, Dropbox doesn't actually show me how many people have, have downloaded them. So I don't know if anyone has actually downloaded them. So I think it's interesting that this so-called community won't even support authors by actually reading their books. And I already knew that beforehand. I didn't expect many people to, to download the books, at least through that method. But it's interesting because... You know, early on, I stated on my Twitter back in 2019 that I would always have an open door policy for people asking for free books. And this this past week, I put my money where my mouth was, and I I put I just uploaded them and and posted the link. And let me tell you, it's disheartening when people won't even read your stuff for free. Now, granted, there were people who did read my books when they downloaded them to their Kindles because I got new reviews. However, you know, most of the people who downloaded the most, the most downloaded book was demise of the, of the Trinity. Most people will start that and they won't finish it. So it's, it just makes you feel like shit sometimes that also I, I'm, I'm marveling at it all because I knew that this would happen. I knew that no one would actually take me up on the offer for free books. You know, people want to be able to to show the books on their Kindle to say I'm supporting an indie author and it's it's all bullshit. But beyond that, 
Thank you for listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway. Happy reading, happy writing. Actually, don't have any happy writing. Your writing sucks. I don't want to read it. Go fuck. <laughs>